Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Diana Fizzler. She's a building materials expert at ADL Ventures. So Diana, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So when I look at your profile and sort of where you sort of came from, geophysics comes up and I'm wondering how you started down that path. I think you're in originally in physics and geology, but what got you into that? Sure. Actually, how far back do you want me to go? Because it's kind of interesting how I ended up in in science at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I mean, I find this story interesting. And especially it might be interesting for women of of a certain age, like women that are a little bit older and came up when there were fewer of us. When I was uh, in high school, I was convinced I was going to be a foreign language major. I was going to translate for the UN much to the disappointment of my father, who was an engineer. (laughs) But I also really loved physics and calculus in high school. And when I got to college, I found out that if you're going to be a foreign language major, you no longer take calculus, you no longer take physics. You're steered toward more softer versions of science electives. And by the time I came home for Christmas to see my family, I had changed to a physics major. And my father was draw jaw dropped, uh, flabbergasted by that development. You know, he was like, I thought you were going for foreign languages. So I came back to this love of science that he put, he instilled in me from a small child. And then sometime around maybe my third year of college, I was hanging around doing some electives in the geology department. And I've told this story before, but somebody showed me a petrographic thin section. Have you ever heard of those? Have you ever, you should Google them sometime. Yeah, yeah. Just give us a quick thumbnail for someone that doesn't know. Sure. So you cut a rock really thin and use polarized light to identify the minerals in it. And the cool thing about it is when you look down the microscope, the colors are amazing. Mm. There's like fuchsia and purple and pink because those are the colors that the polarized light creates for different minerals in different configurations. And I was just enthralled. And from right then and there, I did a, I added a second bachelor's in geology to finish up. And it seemed like the natural progression would be geophysics for graduate school. But little did I know that that actually meant oil and gas exploration, Mm. which wasn't really what I was looking for, but it was pretty fun anyway. So I went to graduate school for geophysics, but my real sort of passion was around minerals and how they behave. And that led me sort of naturally into material science. How do materials behave? Because rocks are really just natural materials. So that's the end of that story. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's what you were looking for. Absolutely. You you got your PhD. Uh And and how'd you end up at, uh, yeah, absolutely, Penn State. Uh And how'd you end up at uh, Johns Mansfield? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, when you're in graduate school, you get to know graduate students through conferences and things like that. And I was actually in New Mexico, which is a beautiful state if you've never been there. Really very 
unpopulated and, and wild in a lot of parts. And I was on a postdoc at Sandia Labs. But postdocs, are, those are soft money positions, and you're always looking for something a little more permanent. And a, an old friend of mine from graduate school, we were just chatting online, which had basically just been invented at that point. And I was like, I need a job. And he said, well, we're looking for a glass chemist at Johns Manville. And I said, I don't know anything about glass. <laughs> and he said, that doesn't matter. You're a material scientist. The skills translate. And I said, well, fine. And I went to interview at Johns Manville, not really thinking that corporate science was what I wanted. You know, I had this idea I was going to be a professor with, you know, in an ivory tower or something like that. But honestly, the people were so nice at Johns Manville. They were humble and kind, and I enjoyed every single conversation I had. So I thought I'd give it a shot. And I did not expect to spend the next 21 years of my life at Johns Manville doing so many different interesting things and materials and research. And that's how that happens. It's sort of you know, you make a decision, then you make another decision. And before you know it, your life has happened. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. So, I mean, when, when I think of larger companies doing, and you're in the innovation area. What, yeah, we'll what, talk about what, that. <laughs> what percentage of the things that you were working on kind of made it to the market? And I'm always curious about that with larger organizations, how much of it just stays inside the company and how much of it roughly gets out? Well, in a lot of the roles that I was in, I was in charge of other people, right? I was managing large groups of people, either technicians or scientists or things like that. So I don't know, maybe around 40% of what we worked on made it to market. Mm -hmm. In many cases, it's, it's invisible to the customer. It's things like, and this is not dismissive of that kind of innovation, but tweaks to the formulation for either cost or performance, things that, that the customer doesn't see. There's not a big fanfare mm. around it. Incremental it makes, innovation. Yeah, right, which we're going to get around to, I assume, you and I. The difference between sustaining innovation and disruptive innovation and revolutionary innovation, right? So at large companies, by and large, innovations are very small. They're terrific. They, they make money. They improve the product incrementally. They make it ever so slightly easier to use, a little bit bigger window of weather during which you can use it, things like that. But then, you know, there are bigger innovations. There are things where like, it makes it easier to, to use and apply and gives you a significant advantage over another customer. Very seldom is it a true like, like wow, no one's ever used this in the market before, especially in building materials, right? Like, it's a very cautious market. It's very slow to change. And big, big changes only come across every decade or so in building materials. Most of the time, it's the satisfaction of making things a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you touched on the different types of innovations. You want to break those down into a little bit more detail? Sure, sure. I'm kind of fascinated by it. You've probably, you've done so many podcasts. You probably touched on Christensen's disruptive innovation versus sustaining, right? So I was just thinking about this earlier before the podcast. So sustaining innovation is what a good large company in an established market does. If you're any kind of successful company, you know 
to listen to your customers, to interview them regularly, and to really hear what they need, right? And what they need, I'll go back to the uh, weather and open time thing. They need a primer for their roof that they can use five degrees colder than currently they're using, right? And so you're busily working on things that fit into existing market channels with your existing customers in their existing business. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful thing, right? Like if you're a good company, you're not asleep at the wheel with your customers. You're constantly asking them, what do you need? And then I don't even know if the, what the name for this one is, but then there's a little bit more sophisticated. There's not just asking your customers what they need, but asking them what hurts them, what causes them trouble, what, what slows them down, what do they not know they need yet, right? And that's, I, I think that's still a sustaining innovation because I think it might be called evolutionary innovation because it actually gets at how to make things better rather than just what people think they need. And then, of course, there's disruptive innovation. There's the, and everybody talks about like digital cameras, right? There's, everybody's been doing things the exact same way. And somebody comes along with something that's worse, more expensive, stupid. Like, who would want to pay for that? I've already got a better camera. Why do I want a camera on my phone? And like, like the story has been told, but it really resonates with me. It's like, if you're going to be, a disruptor, you have to recognize the potential in things that are not already being done. And so that's the like, so might I segue into the thought experiment that I do with building materials? Love so it. I have to attribute this to a colleague of mine and he, we were having coffee and he said, okay, so what's a disruptor to fiberglass, right? Fiberglass is cheap. It's ubiquitous. It does its job really well. Everybody uses it. What could disrupt fiberglass? And the answer is not spray foam. The answer is not sheep's wool as an insulator. The answer is actually free energy. The answer is photovoltaics. Because once you have free energy for heating and cooling your house, you don't need to put fiberglass in your walls. You might do it for comfort, but the value proposition of saving energy and not wasting this precious resource goes away completely when the resource is no longer precious. And maybe that's not going to happen. But the point is, think about what could disrupt your market because it satisfies the need a completely different way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's, just, it's sort of just my looking, take on disruption. Yeah, I think what you're describing sounds a bit more like systems thinking, understanding kind of the, mm. the bigger scope of how things interact and trying to look at it from different angles. Yeah. Well, and the question, what does your customer buy from you? Because what you think you sell your customer is not necessarily why they're opening their wallets, right? Mm. And in some cases, if you ask that in a creative way, you can get an answer that's totally different from what you think they need. Yeah, And I well, think that's really important. That's great. Now, so I'm going to apply that question you just had is you spent a lot of time in the roofing side of things. Mm -hmm. What do the customer actually buy? Like, what were you thinking about when you were yeah. innovating at John Mansville? So I actually did, a, did an interview like this with, and I'm going to do a shameless plug for these guys, Tech Talk 3. 
I think is their name, and also the Roofers Coffee Shop. Sure. I love those ladies. They, they're doing a great thing, and they, they're very innovative on, at bringing new perspectives to the roofing industry. But yeah, we asked this question then, and it was like, okay, so why do people buy roofs? Let's do this thought experiment, right? Do they buy roofs because they love roofs? No. <laughs> do they love shingles? Probably not. They buy roofs and re-roofs. Maybe they do it because it's required by code, but they actually do it to keep their stuff dry, to keep their precious things, you know, their servers or their furniture or maybe their children from getting wet. <laughs> I mean, that's a dumb, that's a dumb way of putting it, right? But it, it, it's true, right? And maybe that a roof is the cheapest way of getting that done. Maybe a roof is the best way to shade yourself from rain and sun. What if there was another way? What if there was a bubble? And this is going to sound crazy. What if, what if you lived on Mars and suddenly that's not what you need is a traditional roof? So when you start to ask yourself, what do they really need? Well, maybe they could have things that don't, it doesn't matter if they get wet. If, if you, you know, if you lived under the sea, maybe that wouldn't matter anymore. So that's the thing is like, what can disrupt roofing? Something else that keeps your stuff from getting wet and sun. So mm. I don't have the answer for it, but but I would ask if you think people want roofers, they really don't. What they want is to keep their stuff safe. Yeah, And it, it leads to another disruption, right? So like, do people want roofers? No, they want roofs. So is there somebody else who can supply roofs? And that's the danger to the roofing business, right? Is if you had robots or roofs that are manufactured on site and flown to your building with drones, suddenly your entire value proposition as a roofer can be disrupted. Mm. So you got to ask, what what are people willing to pay me for? Mm. Does that make sense? I love it. No, that's, yeah. that's a great okay. way of thinking about it. Now, new ideas, a lot of them sort of start to appear from the sort of, I guess, certain labs and entrepreneurs. I know entrepreneurship, at least from my experience, is tough in markets that are risk adverse, as, as you said. Oh, yes. So what what sort of challenges do they run across, like uh, besides from them being risk, risk adverse, like sort of know-how? Yeah, this is something I've been spending I'm like day and night thinking about for the last six months, because I know how risk averse not just manufacturers are, but builders are, right? So they're typically along the line. There's a, there's a small front of early adopters, right? That are like, bring me a new idea. I want to try it, right? <laughs> but then there's the, the by and large and the cost of doing something wrong when you're a builder or a developer is huge. It's gigantic. It's like, there's not only like lawsuits and callbacks and things like that, but there's also risk to your reputation. So I keep zeroing in on the answer I get all the time, which is demonstration, knowing that somebody else has used it, right? And so like, that's a huge barrier to surmount for a, a tiny entrepreneur. How am I going to show a giant builder that all of his buddies are already using this and have been using it for 20 years. You can't manufacture that kind of history out of nothing, right? Yeah. So the, what I think, and you should check back in with me like every six months, we should like <laughs> do an update. What I think is one, 
you've got to have something that scratches an itch or like patches over a pain point for this builder. I'm going to call him a guy, him, so much that it's worth the risk to him. And that's a hard thing to do, but it can be found, right? Like if you suddenly cut his labor in half or if you reduced his risk by giving him a material that can no longer be damaged by moisture or you've taken out a chemical that all of a sudden got banned in like a market that he's in. If you've solved a pain point for him, even if it costs a little money, more money, but even better if it costs the same amount of money, then then that's a compelling proposition. And then it's demonstration projects. What I think we can do in our industry is find our niches where they're less risk averse. You know, we've looked at, I've got an entrepreneur pal that's doing retaining walls. So he's doing non-bearing walls with his technology. When he's done a thousand of those walls, then the next guy is going to say, okay, well, I think I could try this for something a little more risky because I've seen it work in a thousand retaining walls. I know that's not fun for an entrepreneur because entrepreneurs are like, let's go, right? But establishing a beachhead, that's what another one of my colleagues calls it, a beachhead in something that's adjacent to a giant office building in downtown New York, I think is really important. And then developing that portfolio of here's a success, here's another success, and taking like baby steps into the more risky parts of the market, I think is really important. My old company has a beautiful product that's a, a, a tile backer board. So instead of like a heavy cement board, they have this lightweight foam. And the value proposition that it delivers is this super lightweight, easy to handle. And so that shows you when people pick it up, they go, oh my God, this is amazing. And that shows you that if you come with the right product, the right history, and demonstrate that the risk is worth it, I think we inroads can be made in building materials. But boy, it's not easy. If it was easy, like all the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs would have already you know, reinvented <laughs> it and we'd all be replaced by robots and things. It's not an, <laughs> it's not an easy market to transform. Yeah. But with a clear head and eyes open and recognizing the reason for the risk adversity, I think it can be done. Mm. Sorry, I'm kind of talking talking your head off. I'm, I'm no, no, this is good. You have some really good stuff. So now let's look <laughs> at it from the the other side, the, the sure. large companies. You yeah. talked about Innovators Dilemma, Innovate Solution. We had Tony Elwick on as well. But what are the challenges that big companies have to innovate? And I think your current firm kind of uh, sort of works on this problem with them. But But can you walk us through that? Sure, sure. I mean, it's a huge challenge and I'm going to give props to my old company for trying to tackle it for Johns Manville. First, you need a champion, like somebody who recognizes that you're going to sustain, sustainably innovate your way to dinosaurhood if you don't recognize that there are opportunities for disruptive innovation. Because I think most large companies don't really believe it. They say they need innovation, but they don't really believe in their day-to-day job that things are going to change. Like this year, we're going to use fiberglass. Next year, we're going to use shingles. We're going to keep using shingles until I retire and I don't have to worry about disruptive innovation. So there's always a few champions who say, 
I know that things can change and I need to do it. So here are the challenges. You asked me about the challenges. The hugest challenge is that a large company is a machine with all the structures in place to sustain their very excellent business, which is great. You know, that's what they should be doing if they they wouldn't be a good company if they didn't. So the biggest challenge, and I've heard this from a number of like potential clients as well, is once I've created this new technology, this startup, once I've moved into a new business, how do I keep that from getting killed? How do I keep that from withering on the vine, right? Because the bigger part, the bigger company is not going to nurture it and you need a champion to do it. So it has to be sheltered. A new business, a new opportunity, a new technology has got to be sheltered, championed, and protected. And the reality is uh, there's no solution to this except for it comes down to leadership. The CEO's got to say, this is important. Innovation is important. Protect that baby business with everything. Protect the child at all costs, <laughs> right? Like it has to come from the top. Occasionally I've seen disruption come from like a rogue at the bottom who like does a skunk works kind of thing and protects a new business. But I think all the star stars have to be aligned for that to happen. Yeah. So protecting and nurturing the small business and understanding that it's not going to have the same margins, the same momentum as the larger business is super important. And, you know, it just takes hard work, honestly. Like it doesn't just fall into your lap, right? It's got, you've got to nurture it. So I'll tell you, I'll give you one more plug for my old company. And hey, I'm, I have no longer an association with them, but everybody go buy John's Manville products. <laughs> the, what they, they do is they incubate small startups within research and development. And that, in a sense, protects it from the larger business. So it doesn't have like the P&L all day long, you know, being judged. And I thought that was really smart. And I was always a big champion of that model as well. I think there are other ways to do it, but protecting it within R&D was, I thought, pretty clever. I think there are other companies who have the model of a venture arm to try to, you know, mm -hmm. keep isolated from the main business. And I think that can work as well. Seems like the bigger companies do that. If you're big enough, you have some resources and you just say, we're going to do this. We're going to have a venture arm um, to go out and find new things and to like protect and incubate. So that's my, my thoughts on it. Yeah, no, those are really good thoughts. Okay, I, I can go in different directions here, but mm -hmm. okay. So one of the hardest things of a company to sort of support in terms of innovation is something that can possibly cannibalize their, their business. What yes. are examples of building materials companies that have successfully sort of incubated and cannibalized their own product? I know we saw that in Netflix, although it wasn't quite, that elegant when they split their company and did all the pricing changes and create those divisions, they, they successfully did kind of make that transition. But in the building materials space, is there any examples of a company that successfully sort of cannibalized their own market and succeeded? Successfully. Hmm. <laughs> so, so, I mean, maybe I'll go to roofing, but I'm going to talk about it as an industry in general, rather than an individual company. Sure. For years and years and years, the thing for commercial roofs was built up asphalt, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got bituminous layers, you've got glass mats, polyester mats, things like that. 
very labor intensive. You got torching, you know, hot volatiles on the roof. It's, it's, it's hot work, but it makes a hell of a roof, right? It makes about the most like durable roof you could possibly imagine. And that dominated the commercial roofing market for, for many decades. And it's still a terrific way to make a roof, but with changing time and labor becoming in shorter supply, there's just no time to make a roof like that. And, and nobody wants to be up there for hours. There were other pressures on that mode of doing things having to do with open flames on roofs were considered to be less desirable after a while. And also there's volatiles involved. There's asphalt and, and volatile chemicals. And so what sort of cannibalized that market, I would say, is single ply roof. So TPO, EPDM roofs. And in, in, in building materials terms, it happened suddenly. It actually took, you know, about a decade for everything to transition over. But in, in building materials terms, that's unheard of, right? That's like shockingly fast. And I, I can't give you any specific examples of which companies did that, but there are a number of companies who were in the asphaltic materials business, stayed in that, but watched and participated ideally in the taking over of that business by single ply, which is faster, easier, more environmentally friendly, you know, no open flames, things like that. So I know that Johns Manville certainly participated in that disruption of the industry. I'm sure many of the other roofing materials also recognized that it was happening and said, oh, single ply is it, single ply is the future, even though it's going to hurt this traditional built up roofing asphalt business, it's got to be done. It's happening. Mm. And so I would give that as an example of, of that kind of disruption. Absolutely. Cannibalization. Yeah. So you touched on some trends, but just going into that a little bit deeper, what sort of trends are affecting building materials innovation as a whole? What sort of things you Today? see? Today? Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm predicting now what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually thought you were going to ask me this. So I prepared. <laughs> so to me, the one thing that's, that's absolutely looming that I really, I'm seeing like just nibbles of it right now. I don't see anybody, go, every, every, any big company going all in but it's about resiliency. No one can have missed how many fires there were across the United States this past year, right? Mm -hmm. If you live in California, for sure, you're not unaware of it. Colorado has been hit quite badly as well. And there's zero chance that that trend is not going to continue, right? We will continue to have fires in the United States. And I believe Australia was hit pretty bad this year as well. And we build in the U.S. out of wood, and we don't have particularly fire-resistant materials. And then there's flooding, which over the past number of years has been more and more common, hurricanes. And the industry has responded to a certain extent, but I don't think is, is fully prepared for extreme weather events, I'll say. And even if we are starting to address that, there's a lot of existing housing stock that's not ready for extreme weather events. So again, you can check back in with me on every six months, 
but people are talking about it. You know, resiliency is on everybody's lips for sure. But are we actually taking advantage of that? Are we really prepared for, you know, the consequences of, of weather events? I would say we're not. So that's a trend that I'm watching. I'm paying attention to new materials that are coming out that are more resilient to fire, flood, and, and hurricane. But our building practices, I don't think, are, are, have risen to the occasion, are not ready for the kind of, of big changes that I think we're going to see. So that's one thing. The other one that's absolutely near and dear to my heart is offsite construction. And I knew, yeah, you're nodding because you knew I was going to bring that one up. We've dabbled in it over and over again, over decades, but I've been preaching for the past couple of years that I think the time has come. Um, the shortage of labor, the shortage especially of skilled labor, the need, crying need for affordable housing in urban areas, I think are like critical pressures that are going to push us to more and more components manufactured offsite, manufactured in factories. And so that's a that's a set of trends, I'll say, rather than a single trend. And I think I'm seeing enablers start to pop up, more testing labs, certification bodies, set crews that specialize in assembling these things on site. So I think the conditions are right for a major trend toward offsite construction and componentization. It's especially happening already in commercial construction, hospitality, healthcare is is soon to come. Probably the last place that's going to take advantage of offsite construction will be super high-end custom residential, but multifamily is ripe for it and they're aware of that. So, so those are the two things that are top of my mind when you ask me what major trends are happening and are likely to affect buildings, materials and buildings today. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I could talk to you about this topic forever. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, could get, we could geek out like for hours. And it's a shame we're under COVID because like we could just sit around and, you know, have have hours in a coffee shop or a bar just talking about it. Yeah, for sure. Now, so is I mean, we touched on so many different things, but is there anything else that's been top of mind that you want to you want to share with the uh, listeners? I, I always think about materials. I, I know that I tend to ignore software advances, but I think new tools in construction site logistics, enabling software for building design is, is really pretty hot and pretty important for transforming our industry. It's not my specialty. And so I struggle to always pay attention to that. So I want to mention it. There are others that are, are really, really thinking about how do we bring building construction and building materials to the same place we are everywhere else, right? Like we use our phones for everything. We, we call an Uber, we design things on our phone. We bring up an app to do just about everything. We do our banking on our phones and online. We could be doing a lot more building design construction and construction logistics than we are using software. So I think there's a lot of potential there. I'm not the I'm not the one to do it, but a lot of people, especially entrepreneurs, are nibbling at that and doing a good job. And so I think building construction can be brought even farther into, you know, digital and IoT. So that's the one thing that I, I would like to mention as well. Awesome. Do you have any thoughts there? <laughs> 
Ah, uh, there, there's tons, but uh, <laughs> we could talk forever. We could talk forever. Thank you so much. Okay. Very insightful. I feel your passion for your subject, and I appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also, want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.